Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy for a very special episode coming to you live from Euroelectric offices in Brussels. My name is David Weston and joining me as always is Jan Rosenau from Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor. Uh, hi team, I think this is the first time we've been in a room all together for together. our recording. Uh-huh. Are you excited? I think last time, Michaela, you were in Copenhagen yeah. uh, and I couldn't make it. So yeah. uh, now I can make up for it. We had already today's full team. Well, full team for the first time. So we're very excited. Uh, and for this special occasion, we have um, Ditte Jul Jorgensen, uh, Director General of DG Enna, joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, before we get started, a big thanks to our sponsors, Siemens Smart Infrastructure and Linda for making today possible, and also for our hosts, Geoelectric, for allowing us to use their space for today's recording. Following up the upheaval of the past 12 months, governments of all colours are trying to balance rapidly changing market dynamics with protecting vulnerable end users. The need for a strong, stable and resilient energy market in the short term needs to also consider long-term decarbonisation targets. In this podcast, we hope to hear how the European Union is planning to tackle both these issues simultaneously and hear from the clean energy sector uh, about how it is preparing to take up the challenge and what it needs to see happen in the market to accelerate the energy transition. Coming up later, we will hear from Christian Ruby, Secretary General of Euroelectric, Valberger Hemmetsberger, CEO of Solar Power Europe, and Giles Dixon, the CEO of Wind Europe. There will also be a chance for our exceptional audience to ask questions of our panellists and tell us what they think needs to happen to avoid future shocks and maximize stability and sustainable markets. But first, I'm delighted to have Ditter with us today. Um, Ditter, let's dive straight in. What role do renewables have in stopping scenarios like the current energy crisis from happening again? A big role, I think, is is the easiest answer to that. So essentially, we have, uh, within the European Union, we are on a green transition path. We're working towards climate neutrality 2050. We're working towards reaching our uh, objectives for 2030 and objectives are both in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of uh, achieving high level of renewables and more energy efficiency uh, in our system. And that's part of addressing the climate crisis and part of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But it's also very much part of energy security, resilience, affordable energy and sustainable energy. So our plan for this crisis, our response to the crisis, our response to the fact that Russia disrupted gas flows to Europe, our response to the fact that we were too dependent on Russian gas for our energy system was Repower EU. Mm -hmm. And Repower EU aims to reduce that level of dependence. And essentially it rests on three pillars. The first pillar is we need to reduce our consumption energy savings, energy efficiency, uh, process optimization, anything we can do to reduce our consumption. The second pillar is renewables. Renewable energy is, an, is a necessary part of reducing that dependence on fossil, and in particular, of course, the in the short term, the dependence on Russian uh, fossil fuels. So renewables are critical, and the more we can replace by renewables, the better. And then the third pillar is replacing. 
So where we need molecules, where we need natural gas, where we need fossil gas, well, we need to make sure that those molecules come from elsewhere. But uh, to the extent possible, the molecules shouldn't be fossil. If we can make those molecules uh, biomethane or green hydrogen when that market grows and develops, then, then that is all the better. But so renewables is one of the central pillars in, uh, in, in responding to this crisis, but also in protecting ourselves against possible further crises in future because of the resilience element, the independence element, uh, the sustainability and affordability. One thing we're obviously seeing at the moment is very high energy prices. Um, to borrow a phrase from your electric it's essential to understand that the current market design is not the cause of the high energy, uh, high electricity prices. Uh, however, they are key, it must be key in solving it uh, and to stop it from happening again and to accelerate the energy transition to a net zero economy in the most sustainable and practical way. How is the Commission uh, planning to reform the market in a way that promotes both energy security and clean energy? Well, first of all, I think the analysis is correct. It's not the current electricity market design that's at the core of the energy crisis and the high energy prices. The core of the energy crisis is a supply-demand gap. So if you look at the natural gas sector, which is critical in the, in the global energy systems, we have seen supplies not increase at the same pace as demand. Demand shot up again after the COVID uh, lockdown. It could have shot up much more if China had opened faster. It didn't. Uh, and so that was some, some dampening effect on the demand side. And supply, meanwhile, did not go online at the same pace. A number of investments were delayed because of COVID, were postponed because of uncertainties in the market. And so there is a gap. And that tight global gas market uh, has increased prices. Now, the tight global gas market, the, that gap has been further increased by the fact that Russia in 2022, removed about 70 billion cubic meters from the global market. Because the gas supplies that we receive by pipeline are not just taken away from Europe, they're taken off the global market and need to find replacements somewhere. And so that supply demand gap, that, that challenge in global markets, really is the key factor in the crisis. Having said that, our electricity prices are still dependent to some extent on this marginal price setting. And in, in that context, the high gas prices set the marginal price uh, because natural gas is still part of our power generation. Um, and so what we're looking at as part of the electricity market design is to see, well, what can we do? What is the best way to, uh, to set up that electricity market in the European Union to make sure that we support the transition, that we support and incentivize further investments into renewables as quickly as possible, that we, to the extent possible, protect consumers from this impact of the high gas prices, but also more generally that we try to give consumers the instruments they need to uh, use greener energy and cheaper energy as part of their, as part of the energy systems. So those are some of the considerations we have in, in the electricity market design. But I think the overall, though, the, the, the basic analysis is quite important to know that we are in a global energy crisis. The International Energy Agency assesses this is the first truly global energy crisis. It doesn't make it any easier for anyone, but it's good to know what, what is causing the crisis when we're trying to uh, identify the best answers, the best instruments. I mean, we are in a fossil gas crisis, a heating crisis, and somehow we ended up now looking into electricity market design, which we already looked at sub, sub, quite substantially when the clean energy package was adopted. On the other side, we never looked into the gas rules. We came out with a gas package two months before the war started, but we're not reassessing that one. How does that fit together? 
so first of all, the, what you refer to as a gas package is the, is the decarbonization of gas package. So there's quite a big, uh, quite a big difference here in the sense that we're looking at strengthening the, the regulation in the gas sector, but we're looking at how do we best regulate this sector in a way that can facilitate uh, investments into and higher shares of, for example, green hydrogen or other renewable gases or clean gases in the system. So I think it's important that that future regulation really aims at being part of the transition and facilitating the, uh, the transition. We have, uh, in fact, made suggestions for further strengthening of regulation in the gas sector, and we've achieved quite a few things this year. And now I'm coming with a very long list, so please, my apologies, but, uh, but just to recall where we come from and what has been done, because the first thing we did as the crisis started, or rather, before the war started, we had uh, presented the toolbox on, on energy prices to clarify what can member states do to help consumers address the high, the high prices. As the war started, and as we could see, we were in a, in a challenging situation as regards gas supply, fossil gas supply, as you say. We, of course, did a review of all the preparedness plans to make sure everyone is ready if the crisis gets more serious within the European Union or in our neighboring countries. And then we adopted, and here I come to the regulatory side, we adopted the storage regulation. Before that, there were no real requirements for storage, for filling underground storage, and we have now put in place rules for the filling of, of underground gas storage, fossil gas storage, but also for the better utilization of LNG terminals, as proposed last year, uh, and to certify these storage uh, owners. And then since then, we have, we have presented and, and adopted a number of measures with relevance to the fossil gas sector. I think the most important one that I, or one that I would like to mention here is the uh, demand reduction, so the gas saving package that was put forward in the summer and adopted by Council immediately after that, with a European uh, objective of 50% demand reduction, an objective that is being met. That's an ongoing process, but for now uh, it is being met. And then in one of the most recent packages, and I'll spare you the full list, but I'm glad to come back to any of them. But in one of the more recent packages, we are looking at uh, joint purchasing, demand aggregation, but we're also looking at more transparency in gas markets, in fossil gas markets around uh, contracts, but also around the use of infrastructure. How do we make best use of the LNG terminals we have? How do we make best use of the uh, interconnectors and pipelines we have so that we can keep everyone uh, secure and warm in their homes uh, by making better use of the infrastructure we have. So I think quite a lot of things have happened on the, on the regulatory side. Will not a lot of those regulations lock in gas for a longer period of time? And should we not be looking to retire gas sooner uh, and in favour of cleaner ele electricity renewables? So what we're doing on the, uh, if I may respond by, uh, uh, by, by uh, looking at our infrastructure, what we're doing in the field of infrastructure, and that's critical in terms of lock-in, because either you invest in infrastructure that fits the future energy market and the future energy mix, or you invest in infrastructure that locks you into whatever the, 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 the market is now. And one of the critical pieces of legislation there is our trans-European networks uh, legislation, our regulation, which was revised uh, last year, and which simply shifts attention away from Fossil gas investments, there's not going to be projects of common interest in the area of, of fossil gas, but there's going to be investments into electrification, renewables, uh, hydrogen. So that is a way of adapting our markets and our infrastructure into that future uh, energy market, into that greener energy market. 
I want to bring up a topic that featured quite prominently in Repower U, which is permitting. Yes. Um, we've all seen photos of uh, stacks of paperwork that had to be submitted in Germany, I think that went viral on social media a while back. And I think just last week I saw an article that um, compared different types of books, you know, the Bible and the cookbook, and how many of those would you need to fill in all the paperwork for a new wind farm in, in, uh, in Europe. Um, and clearly um, the commission has recognized that um, yes, permitting is a big issue. It's a big concern for the industry, I know. Um, and Repower EU has said we will speed up permitting. So my question really is, how is that going? Repower EU was published, um, I think, in, in draft, kind of in, in March first, and then in May, I think 18th of May, we had the full package. Uh, was that, what has happened since? Uh, where are things going? Are we seeing improvements? And also, what's your view on how much permitting procedures are actually needed? Because we need to make sure that we have the grid connections, that we take into account social environmental concerns. Yeah, no, this is a really, really good point. And we see that these administrative delays and permitting delays, they delay the rollout of renewables. So it's clear that that's something that has to be addressed and something that has to be uh, improved. Um, we already addressed it in the 10E regulation that I mentioned before, clarifying permitting rules there. We also took it up in our proposal for the Renewable Energy Directive, further clarifying permitting rules. And then, as you said, in the Repower EU plan, we added further a higher level of ambition, if you will, both on the renewable target, but also on what can you do on permitting and, and creating greater clarity in terms of the overriding public interest of renewable energy as an absolutely critical part of the green energy transition and of our fight against, uh, against climate change. And that legislation, so the revised, the further revision of the Renewable Energy Directive is currently in the, um, in the legislative procedure. So it's with council and with parliament and they're both establishing their positions so that uh, that can be adopted into the, into the future re Renewable Energy uh, Directive. Because that does take a little bit of time, first for it to be adopted and then before it enters into force and it has to be transposed, it's a directive, so it needs to go into national legislation. So to build a bridge, if you will, until that enters into force, we have made a proposal for an emergency regulation under the treaty article 122, the emergency uh, legal basis. And that bridge on permitting essentially puts in place some of this accelerated permitting on a temporary basis because of the crisis, because of the need to significantly accelerate the rollout uh, of, uh, of renewables. This regulation um, has been uh, is, is, uh, has reached a, a kind of an agreement in principle among ministers in the last uh, Energy Council meeting. So the texts are stable, uh, but now they hinge on further discussions on, on other issues among energy ministers next week. And so I really hope we can have agreement on that before the end of the year so that we can immediately start applying that simplification of, uh, uh, of permitting. Another aspect of permitting is not so much regulatory, but it is how we do and how the local and national authorities work because different member states do things in different ways. And so so there's a lot of recommendations and a lot of sharing of best practices that can be done as well to try to accelerate uh, permitting uh, processes. At the core of it is, of course, the need to find a balance in terms of policy objectives, but also a legal solution to different areas of legislation and the necessary protection of the environment and the, and the including the international obligations in that context. So it is not it's not as it's not as simple as a, as a cookbook. It is something where you really do need to find the right legal solutions. But I think we've taken a very big step in that direction that will help accelerate the rollout of renewables. 
Um, one of the major talking points of the last couple of uh, weeks uh, is the introduction of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the US uh, and the measures that that's taken. It's a huge uh, document, lots of investment in clean energy techs and uh, something really brings kind of the United States back to the forefront of the energy transition. But as I understand, and Michele will be able to tell a little bit more about it, it's been met with a little bit of reticence within the European Commission. Uh, how are you responding to the IRA? So um, I think the IRA, on the one hand, is a really strong signal that the US is uh, addressing climate change and is ready to make the investments to address climate change and is really engaging in the green transition. So that's a good thing and one where there's, I think, scope for close cooperation and a good partnership. Then, at the same time, some of the instruments used for that are worrying from a trade and investment and competitiveness perspective in the sense that there is significant funding. Some of that funding links into local content or other requirements that make it more difficult for Europe to compete and makes it more difficult to keep some of those investments and some of that manufacturing in Europe. So there is a genuine concern about the economic instruments that are used there. This was discussed earlier this week um, uh, between the US and the EU, and I think there's a, there are some positive signals coming out from those conversations in terms of what could be adjusted and what could be done to address those uh, very real concerns. At the same time, I think the fact that both the US and we and other large uh, uh, energy uh, markets and trade markets and investment uh, areas are engaging in the transition also opens very significant opportunities in, in terms of innovation, further investments into green technologies, further investment of European wind, solar, other technologies in the US. And so there's, that aspect to it is an important one that I think we should bear in mind as well and see, well, what, what can we, how can we best make use of those uh, changes, both for, the, for our energy systems, the global energy system, for our climate, uh, but also from a trade and investment perspective. So... Um can we, can we expect some further money going into this? I have heard that there are reflections that the EU should also put some money on the table. There's a lot of push from certain industries. So uh, I think it's important to say that uh, Money-wise, we will never compete, and I think the EU has a whole set. We have a carbon price they don't have, so I think that we, we work differently, and so some, some calls are overstated. But it struck me that after repower, we, we tagged money for LNG, and there's a lot also going on to hydrogen, but the one terawatt we want to have almost for renewables, there wasn't really money attached to it. So can we expect something to come because I think the US IRA is, has been very clever. They have cleverly assessed along the whole value chain what the problems are. And I think, yeah, they, yeah. So how do we respond to that, to the shortages and the supply gaps? And I mean, I have to say, for example, what I always found was a bit of a forgotten strategy, which was also in 2020, uh, the offshore renewables. I don't think there was ever a substantial follow-up in terms of, of money. And we identified back then that basically we are leading, we still are, for wind, but that you know the market shares go down. And that was before pandemic and before anything, everything else that happened in terms of catastrophe since. So uh, what's your view on that? What should Europe do? You've made some very important points, and one is that there are different systems across the Atlantic. We do things in different ways, and so one cannot do just a kind of a one-to-one -one read across. I think it's important to, to, to recognize those differences as, um, as, uh, as you are doing. 
Um, then uh, the second point I would make is I don't think uh, offshore wind is the forgotten strategy. A lot has happened out there since then. Um, but I think there needs to be a distinction between what is needed from public budgets and what is the private investment and financing out there? What are the opportunities out there for the development of, of these markets? So I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I think that it is an important point to, uh, to, to recognize that. What we have done on the financing side is uh, obviously the recovery and resilience uh, facility and the national programs where we require a high share to go into the green transition, renewables, energy efficiency and other investments that, that go in the direction of helping to address the climate crisis. And the incentives for spending the money in that way have just been increased many fold by the energy crisis and by the high, by the high uh, energy prices. Then we have... Uh, facilitated, we have clarified what uh, what can be done under national subsidy systems. So the temporary crisis framework and state aid, which has been in place for a few, quite a few years now, because one crisis has followed another crisis, and which has just been reviewed again to clarify further what are the types of public investment and support that can be made into um, into these uh, sectors. So I think quite a lot has been done both on the pri private financing side and also on the public financing side. Um, the whole next generation EU very significant funding, but funding that goes into national programs and therefore they you have to uh, to calculate what does that mean uh, uh, what is the cumulative effect on that and so so the numbers look look different it's a different way of doing it but i think there's quite significant financing out there as you said their discussions continue on that also in light of the energy crisis what is needed uh, in, in addition to the regulatory measures what funding what financing might be necessary and so we'll see how those discussions uh, develop but i think it's important to recognize and recall that a lot that a lot uh, has been done and we have done a lot to facilitate the private financing as well um, you you mentioned our our ETS system we also have the taxonomy we've done a lot of things to try to facilitate investments into into these markets and I think one aspect there but it'll be interesting to hear what the industry thinks of that is the fact that we have set ourselves very clear targets for 2030 and beyond. And so in terms of investor certainty and, and market certainty, I think those send important signals as well to help make sure that the necessary investments uh, take place. I have a question on hydrogen. Yes. Um, yeah. Can't have a podcast without. <laughs> right. Or any discussion. <laughs> or in, any in energy. discussion for that matter. I mean, in part of uh, Repower U was also about hydrogen. There was a target of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 10 million tons of green hydrogen to be domestically produced by 2030 and the same amount to be imported from, from other countries. Countries. Uh, and the current production globally of green hydrogen, I think, is less than 1 million tons. So it's 20 times more, roughly. Um, so one question is, how realistic is a target um, of that magnitude? You know, we only have, what, eight years until 2030? And the second part of the question is related to the power sector decarbonization in Europe. You know, we need an awful lot of renewables to meet just the power sector goals. And the, yeah, there are concerns that if we produce so much hydrogen from renewables, where does it leave the power sector, especially in a situation where we try to move away from gas, electrification, in district heating, individual homes will play a large role, electric vehicles will come online. So how do we um, marry up all these different goals um, and is the 20 million tons of green hydrogen still realistic and achievable in your view? I think this is a very, very good point. Uh, the, the fact that we are going to need significantly higher levels of renewable electricity 
uh, for the electrification. And we need the electrification to be more energy efficient. It's essential, an essential part of the transition. So I think we need to recognize that we're going to need significant investments into renewable electricity generation over the coming years. And as you've said, into grids, into everything uh, around them. And so we have that these targets are, are very, very ambitious. And we have to be careful we don't take electricity away from those functions, because that, again, that's the energy efficient way to, to organize our systems, um, as has also been recognized in our energy system integration strategy and the other, the other uh, kind of more forward-looking strategies we, uh, we, we have adopted. And that exactly explains why we believe that it's necessary to have both domestically uh, produced green hydrogen and imported uh, green hydrogen. It's clear that with the uh, with the uh, um, increase in renewable uh, electricity generation within the European Union, we would not be able to have enough hydrogen quickly enough to let this to help this market take off both on the supply and the, and the and the demand side. So that is, I think, the first reason for the need for the imported hydrogen. In terms of how much imported hydrogen can we arrive at, and how much can we arrive at in the European Union, I think one of the key one of the learnings we have had and one of the things we, we have seen in our strategies and policies so far is to set these targets actually has an impact. It's a very strong market signal. So to say to global markets, we are here to buy, we are ready to import renewable hydrogen, will help investments take off not just within the European Union, but also in other parts of the world. And we have seen over recent, uh, since the beginning of the year, the significant interest uh, in, uh, in partner countries. We've just signed an MOU with Egypt. We are talking to countries in Latin America, talking to countries that have significant potential in terms of increasing renewable electricity generation and that have an interest in stepping into the green hydrogen market. And I think the investment signals that we have been able to send plus the European investment of renewable generation in some of those uh, countries really can help that uh, take off. So these numbers are ambitious. You're absolutely right. They're based on, uh, on sound analysis uh, and work uh, with partners, work with, with industry, but they are ambitious uh, indeed. Do you think the European Commission is um, perhaps overestimating the need for green hydrogen? There are lots of uh, alternatives. Um, Battery storage, for example, um, is one, but maybe producing it as ammonia is another option. Is green hydrogen going to be the energy carrier of the future? So I think um, I think the the important I think I guess the important point is that the energy system of the future is going to have many different names and vectors and uh, and ways of of working. So we cannot rely just on hydrogen or just on electricity or just on uh, on natural gas as a transition or uh, we really do need to make sure that we deploy the different storage mechanisms we have the different energy vectors that we have hydrogen is critical in that context because it responds to a lot of the different needs but there are also some needs where hydrogen doesn't respond as well as as other um, as other technologies so the, the easy example is heating of homes it is simply a lot more efficient to heat homes by heat pumps. So yes, you could use you could use hydrogen for that, but we would lose a lot of energy in doing it. So I think the key point here for all of us as we design the hydrogen strategy and design the, the uses, and as we see that uh, those investments and that industry take off, that we really try to make sure that we don't just spread it loosely wherever we think it might look interesting, but focus on where is there real value added in terms of energy efficiency. Let's write that into the EU gas decarbonization <laughs> package, Ditte, then. <laughs> I know you've only got a little short time with you today, so uh, thank, I really appreciate your, uh, your time with us. Um, before you go, I'd like to have a question about skills uh, and uh, supporting the number of workers in Europe, uh, particularly, but also worldwide. Um, 
what is the European Commission doing to help to promote training and retraining of uh, people to make sure that everyone's carried along with the energy transition? And there, the aim was to align the skills strategy with where, where the needs across our economy. And it's clear that the, that the green energy sector, that the, that the green transition sector, the climate-related sector, if you will, uh, is, a necessary, is, is a sector where we need to make sure we develop the skills and we have the skilled labor, we create the opportunities uh, and, and create attractive workplaces and, and make sure we have the skills also in, a, in, in, in the educational uh, sectors and educational uh, policies. There are obviously other sectors, the health sector is another one where we need to make sure we attract skills as we've seen over the last, the last uh, few years. So we've got an overarching strategy. I think there's the year of skills coming up and so a lot is happening there also in terms of outreach. I think one of the most, some of the nicest conversations I've had since I started working on energy was with young people interested in the energy sector and young people wanting to work in the energy sector and contribute either because they wanted to work on solar or on wind or on in hydrogen or whatever. And you see how big the interest is out there, how many people are, are really um, keen to start working there. And I think that's what, that's what we need. We need to have information about the sectors, information about the opportunities, information about the fact that this sector will also become an equal opportunity sector. At some point, more, uh, more women are joining, younger people joining, people from different backgrounds joining. Uh, so yeah, I think we need, we need to do more, but I think we've got with the skills, skills strategy and with the year coming ahead, we have good basis for doing that. If you could change one thing the commission um, has done or not done um, over the last 10 years. Um, could, you, could you point to something specific that we should have done earlier or maybe shouldn't have done uh, that would have helped us with the current crisis that we're in? Well, I think we have, um, we have established an energy union uh, and I think we have put a lot of the right instruments in place. But I think a closer energy union where every action taken is considered in the, in the common framework of what works at European level, that's one of the things that I think we can learn also from this, from this crisis. I think one of the encouraging aspects in terms of the crisis management is that there is really broad agreement that we need to work together at European level, we need common solutions, and we need continued unity within, within the European Union. So there's, a, there's both a, you know, what, what could have been done, but also what are we seeing now and that encouraging, fairly hopeful message in terms of how we're, how we're working. Before you go, I know our trade representatives would like to give you a message, each of them, give you a short message to take something away uh, from your time with us this afternoon. Um, Christian, can we begin with you? What's your message for Ditter? Well, thank you very much for being here. I would just pick up on, on what you said about uh, investor certainty and, and direction. I think what targets provide us is a clear uh, idea about the direction that policymakers would like us to move in. What it doesn't provide is a business case in itself. Uh, and for that, we need a market and an investment framework that provides that. And um, there is some concern in the industry about how radical uh, any intervention or change to the market rules would be. Uh, for instance, the, the Greek model under discussion would, would really... Uh, trigger a huge multi-year gap in investments because nobody would know how it works uh, and 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 you would cloud the outlook of investors and and the certainty of investors by by making such a drastic move the second point i would make is you know the existing market we have can deliver a lot in combination with some some very very targeted measures towards customers uh um 
and, and here I'm talking about providing a, a better mix of long and short-term signals in the retail price. Uh, there's a lot of no-regret options that would really uh, be easy to implement for the commission to, to, uh, to shield customers better uh, against immediate major shocks. And the last thing would be that, that uh, what we need to address is, um, is really the business case uh, for, for new capacity uh, in a way that's sustainable, market-oriented uh, in the way we do it. And, and we, should, um, we should refrain from uh, revolutionary changes. That's, that's our key message. It's an evolution, not a revolution we need. Thank you. Uh, Valberger from Solar Power Europe. Um, underline everything that Christian just said. But uh, what I want to, to do is really thank you for the incredible heavy, heavy lifting you have been doing with Repower EU uh, and with this very historic, I would say, uh, measures you have been putting forward. So this heavy lifting obviously will get us over this winter. Uh, the question is, what are we doing with next winter? And I would like to bring some good news because there's some low-hanging fruits, <laughs> uh, some lighter lifting uh, that the European Commission could do in the next couple of months. And that is concerning grid integration and flexibility uh, because we do see, so first of all, that implementation of the current rules, you know, if it would be reinforced in member states, it would make a huge difference. But then, for example, there are rules that you cannot combine storage, uh, solar and storage in homes uh, because it would be um, contrary to state aid rules. So if we could lift that already, uh, the solar and storage market would take off. It does, by the way, already. We installed some one million storage, home storage. Uh, we just came up with a report uh, already. But, you know, this can be propelled to the next level if these kind of rules are um, uh, are taken away. There's also very good examples in Ireland where, you know, the flexibility needs are just put on the market and market solves it. So there's a couple of low-hanging fruits and uh, I have a whole list which I'm happy, happy to share with you to make the lifting a little bit less heavy. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Valberger. Uh, and finally, Giles Dixon from uh, Wind Europe. Any your message? Investments in wind are down because investors are spooked by the emergency measures, the revenue caps on inframarginal generation and the bad way in which many member states are implementing them are sending very negative signals to wind investors. Now also, unfortunately, the emergency measures on permitting are also sending negative signals because it's not clear whether those measures are going to apply only to new permits for new projects or will they apply also to the huge stock, 80 gigawatts of wind projects which are currently stuck in permitting. The Repower EU measures on permitting were excellent because they do apply to all permits. But the emergency measures only are mandatory for the new permits for new projects, which is a step backwards and sends great confusion out there to investors about what the rules on the simplification of permitting are going to be. It's vital that the Renewable Energy Directive rules under Repower EU that are going through co-decision, as you say, Ditter, that they stick 
to the wind, and they apply to all permits, including those currently stuck in the permitting process. Pilots never disappoint. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just give just a brief reply before I before I rush off. So first of all, on the electricity market design uh, and the revision that is coming up early in the new year, we'll be launching a, a consultation. So everyone, all stakeholders, will have an opportunity to comment on uh, on the paper that should be coming forward quite soon. And I hope you will do that. So please make use of that opportunity. It is important that we hear as many views as possible and get the guidance and, and reflections that are necessary to get things right in, in, in the review. Please, um, well, we're going to do send ideas for low-hanging fruit, more that can be done. Uh, I think we have, we're going into this winter uh, prepared. In a sense, we have done a lot of things through this year to get ready for this winter. We're, of course, thinking at the winter ahead and what more can be done. I think one of the really encouraging things is that we have, in fact, seen on the ground an acceleration into uh, renewable uh, investments. The photovoltaic share is going up very, very significantly, very quickly. Uh, so a lot of good things are, are happening there. But there's always more um, that can be done. So do do send your, uh, your, um, your list. I think on the demand side, flexibility and what can consumers and customers do. These are critical elements of that. And of course, that consumer-customer side will be picked up in the electricity market design consultation that will be coming out. So uh, you'll see more about that uh, too. I think in terms of uh, permitting, we really have taken it as far as we can in the emergency measure under that legal basis. So that's the temporary measure to accelerate permitting as a crisis response. And then, as you've also said, the Repower EU, the Renewable Energy Directive, that is the structural change and the forward-looking framework that is necessary to further um, accelerate uh, permitting. So we'll continue our, our, our work on that and create clarity in terms of um, uh, in terms of what are the what are the uh, what are the principles and, and what are the um, applicable uh, rules I think uh, in terms of uh, investments into the sector and and the revenue cap um, I think we can all uh, we've all seen that the um, profit margins accruing to investors were much higher this year than what any investor would ever have dared dream of so I think we need to put things into perspective that we're going from extremely high levels, we're going from very, very high consumer prices, and we need to make sure that we can compensate consumers, households, businesses from those temporarily very, very high prices. So again, we're looking at an emergency, short-term, temporary uh, instrument that really is a necessary part of the, of the uh, emergency response. What is critical, and here I come back to the electricity market design, is to get it right uh, in that review so that we send the right investment signals. One of the objectives of the review will, of course, be to make sure that we keep the signals in order to incentivize investments into renewables. Absolutely. Dita, thank you so much for your time today. I know you must rush off. Um, I really appreciate your uh, input today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, so I'd, uh, my thanks to Ditta. I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Christian Ruby, Secretary General of Euroelectric, um, <laughs> before he rushes off. Um, Valberger Hemmetsberger, CEO of Solar Power Europe, and Giles Dixon of CEO of Wind Europe, to the stage to join us now. Thank you uh, to our trade representatives uh, for your input just then uh, and for joining us today. Um, Christian, I'd like to start with you. Firstly, thank you again for. Uh, allowing us to use your space today for the podcast. Um, are you pleased with what you heard uh, from Ditta and the Director General? Um, and what is your reaction to that? 
Well, I think it, uh, the commission deserves credits for uh, all that extra work they've been doing. Uh, nobody expected this crisis to emerge in this way that it did. And, and there has been a, uh, an honest attempt at, at making a, a really uh, comprehensive crisis response. That said, um, I think it's fair to say that, that the industry is very worried about some of the signals we've had from the highest level that, uh, that as I said, uh, first of all, the emergency measures on the electricity side are not working well for companies. Uh, they're not working well for investors. And, and they're adding to the, to the pain that we're feeling uh, with, with the RA being so attractive uh, for investors. That's the one thing. And the other thing is that this fundamental question mark over market design that we're seeing uh, basically puts us in a situation where it's very difficult for an investor to say, I'm going to you know, put a billion in this market right now. You don't know what you get right now because there's a huge fragmentation of, uh, of the implementation of the emergency measures. And you don't know what you get in the long term because uh, we have a discussion that ranges from a complete split up of the market with a Greek model uh, to doing nothing and some, something in between that nobody really knows what is. We have a lot of uh, good... Uh, let's say, uh, uh, interpretations of what th that might be, but nobody really knows. And, and, and to basically make fundamental adjustments to a market we've, we've built over 20 years in less than 20 months is, is a very, very, uh, let's say, um, courageous, uh, uh, let's say, um, a plan. Valdog, your reaction to um, what we heard just from Ditter? I mean, definitely the uh, market design has to play a major role or is playing a major role. So we need to look into that very, very thoroughly. Um, and we see also, for example, in PPA markets that, uh, you know, there's a chill. Um, there's, for example, in those markets where we see the, the biggest, the, the biggest um, uh, changes into the market design, like Greece, that there's no PPA sign now. At the same time, uh, we see the solar market growing exponentially. Um, so we will come up with our figures in a couple of days' time of this year, and it is by far surpassing our own expectations, um, not just the International Energy Agency ones. <laughs> so, um, so you know, there's a lot happening, uh, and we're, I mean, I can give you a sneak preview. It will be more than 40 gigawatt that we will be adding this year uh, to the market that is doubling uh, the capacities than what we still installed uh, some two years ago. Um, so a lot is happening, but we also would underline that uh, you know, uh, interventions into the markets do more harm than any good. Uh, so we should really look into, into that very closely. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Uh, and finally, Giles, I saw you listening very intently uh, to some of Ditter's uh, comments there. What was your reaction? I think Ditter gets it on permitting and the damage that the emergency measures on it are doing. On the emergency measures on electricity markets and the revenue caps, she's right to defend the Commission's proposal. 
and even the instrument that was finally agreed. But the damage is being done by national governments and the way they're deviating from the common EU cap of 180 euros a megawatt hour. Technology neutral it was meant to be. And here they are bringing in technology specific caps willy nilly and potentially changing them. Who knows? Investors are spooked. And I'm not sure the Commission really understands the damage that is being done out there in investment markets. As I said, investments in wind are down in every country in Europe. What's the lowest cap you've seen? Just out of curiosity. Well, the Germans are looking at the last auction results plus 30 euros. Now, if the last auction results are your starting point, hold on. What about the inflation in input costs that has happened since those last auctions? Duh, that might be more than 30 euros already. Hello, hello. Come on. The other thing that Ditter didn't mention that much is grids. No. We are not building out the grids nearly fast enough to integrate all of these new renewables we've got to build. But Charles, you also haven't been mentioning grids that much recently. I th you, you talked always a lot about permitting, but um, because when I was still working in, we always had this, what are the big obstacles? And grid, grid connection, uncertainty, costs was always the second most important. And I think it's, it's, it's insane if but the amount of investment needs that there are in this area. So even if we sorted permitting, you still need to get your connection. The permitting, of course, applies not just to new renewables, but also to grids. Yes, we've got to sort the permitting. We're making slow progress there. We've got to double the amount that's being invested in grids. And national governments really need to kick their TSOs to accelerate the pace of grid build-out, TSOs and DSOs. I want to follow up on a point Christian made before on market design because I think that uh, um, is worthy of further exploration. You know, it's taken up a lot of airtime. Um, there have been these quite radical proposals of splitting the market. There have been proposals for price caps. Um, but also some people would say, let's not touch the markets at all and let's just provide rebates. So there's a, there's a wide variety of opinions. My own organization, RAP, we've been somewhere in the middle of saying we need some short-term intervention that doesn't distort the market and you know, change the fundamentals completely. But I just wanted to understand and probe you a bit on that. What are the risks of getting this wrong for the industry, especially for the renewables industry? Um, why are you concerned about some of the proposals that you're hearing? Uh, and what would you like to see is the landing point, and you alluded to it already a little bit, but what's the landing point once we come out of this for the new market design in Europe? It's a question to all three of you. Whoever feels most, most comfortable taking it. Well, maybe we can hear about the, the, the damage done on renewables in a second, but we've heard Giles already um, uh, that, that investments are down. And I mean, the, the, there's a justified concern out there because uh, we are basically considering a fundamental overhaul of, of, a, of a very, very detailed set of rules in the midst of a situation where, you know, we're, we're close to political hysteria. And, and that's just never a good idea to sort of uh, review your entire life if, if you're in the midst of an emotional uh, situation. So, so we, need to, we need to cool down a bit. And, and, and I think what you're saying about distinguishing short-term against long-term is extremely important. The real risk right now is 
I would say not, perhaps not so much a, a fundamental sort of radical overhaul, but, but that some of the bad stuff that has been done uh, as emergency measures will be perpetuated uh, in a market design review. That said, I think we need to be clear about the fact that, that policymakers are facing constituencies that are really, really struggling with the levels of the prices. And they are going to act because they uh, want to be reelected and they're, uh, they're basically um, looking out for, for their, um, for their um, citizens and voters. And, and therefore, we want to go into this debate with uh, a kind of constructive approach, which is don't destroy what we've built painstakingly over 20 years. Let's build on top of this and let's make some, some surgical tweaks to this that can help. Uh, and, and we're outlining three areas where we think there's something to be done. First one is customers. Um, the reason this crisis has hit so bad is that there is uh, too much of an exposure to spot prices in retail. If we had a better mix of long-term and short-term signals in retail, we would have a better situation now. We see markets where the impacts have not been seen yet because people have hedged for a long time and, and, and the impacts of this disruption have not kicked in. So let's make sure that we get a structural arrangement for that. The first thing the commission can do is to avoid uh, bans, for instance, on long-term arrangements in retail, uh, which is the case. Romania, one year is the maximum you can, you can have in terms of, of, of a long-term arrangement. goes without saying, then Putin gets in your pocket after one year. So let's think about that. Second, we're saying capacity. It's great news that, that we're seeing big additions uh, on solar. The truth is that we have a structural underinvestment in power capacity, and it's massive. Um, so how do we address that? We need a effective functioning um, investment framework that also makes sure that uh, wind turbine manufacturers are profitable um, and basically takes into account that we have a different macroeconomic situation. Um, and we need to see investments, by the way, in storage, in firm capacity. Otherwise, we are not going to be ready for this massive electrification we want. The last thing, and then I'll stop, um, is that, that we need to think more carefully about security supply. I think this crisis has taught us that. And we need to think about security supply, not in the old way, which was let's build a lot of fossil because that's our liability today. We need to think about it in the context of a changing system where we're going decentral, where uh, we can have a perfect balance at TSO level, but where people are lacking power in the low grids. Uh, where we have a better visibility on the need for build-out of distribution grids, where we have a uh, much more granular understanding of what do the investments need to be next year and next year, not sort of in a 10-year perspective, uh, uh, these kind of, you know, uh, pie-in-the-sky plans. We, we need more granularity, better planning that can inform the investments and also allow for the customers to know what's coming. That's the vision that we try to push in the context of the market design. May I ask something? Why, you rightly point out, we have to do something for the retailers. So basically, you know, there was always the famous saying, the internal energy market keeps prices in check, and turns out it actually didn't so much for the customer. Why has that not happened in 20 years of internal energy market? Why were there not business models coming up that were de-risking a bit more? Why 
do we ha do we still have the majority of green offers based on geos and nothing uh, not a lot more substantial came up why was there not someone in germany coming in with something style octopus energy uh, to bring the smart meters that they don't install. I mean, we also don't have an internet in Germany, so I guess there's some <laughs> consistency there. But I mean, you know, if you're part of the energy value chain, why has nothing happened there in the past 20 years? Well, I think we need to be honest about the fact that this was a, a very deliberate political choice and it followed a certain philosophy on how markets work. Uh, the idea was that bringing everything to the spot would give the best allocation and, and give the best price setting. Um, and, and, and that may be in, in the best of all worlds. Uh, unfortunately, we don't live in that best of all worlds. We live in a world where Putin has decided to disrupt our energy supply. Um, so, so we're moving uh, very fast now from a, a world of sort of just in time, as we say in economics, to a, more of a world of uh, just in case. And uh, we need to have that a, a bit more of that just in case uh, in, in our thinking, finding out how do we uh, insulate our markets against these deliberately uh, induced shocks and um, and it's not for shortage of business models it's it's because the regulation has basically been pushing out long-term arrangements from the market that was a deliberate and, and very uh, explicit uh, political uh, strategy can I test one observation because you know if you look back at how also with the power market design discussion I mean what I don't like is this power market the internal energy market is an objective in itself huh? so 20 years of discussion if you think was about renewables have to live off the market renewable support scheme are a bad thing uh, you know a lot of orthodoxy there then they finally managed to live off the market something that we have not even postulated for fossil by the way I don't know why always renewables then they manage it and now I think we are moving into the other extreme and basically come with ideas like obligatory CCFDs, sh pushing everyone into an auction. So in a way, it's from one extreme to the other, but still not developing. A, a, you know, what does the internal market do for renewables? I don't think there's still a reflection on it. What would you say? Charles looks at me already. <laughs> you mentioned CCFDs. The wind industry loves contracts for difference. But this idea we hear of, of imposing CFDs on all power generation assets is crazy. First, many renewables assets will need to be not on CFDs but on PPAs, not least because there are so many industrial and corporate energy consumers who are crying out for renewable PPAs. Second, the idea of transferring existing assets that already have their business model and their revenue model onto something new, like a CFD, that is a retroactive change. This is bad policy-making, like absolutely. Yeah, I remember. If you make it voluntary, if you offer it um, rather than require it, would you like it then? Far better. But still, what's the, you know, why obsess now about this instrument, which a few years ago was the devil's stuff still, I remember, you know. I mean, you have renewables communities, you have, you won't get solar roofs through auctions. No. Let's be honest, why this emphasis again? That's what I mean. You know, there's so much other stuff that is good and that makes a business case for renewables. Definitely, and if I can, if I can come in here, 
Because I think what you're referring to is this one idea in one non-paper to move everything into CFDs again. Uh, but this is definitely not coming from the, from the industry and this is just one idea how the new market design should look like. Um, and I do think that if we would go back into you know, putting everything in CFDs, uh, we would go back to the Middle Ages somehow because you know, all the in innovation has taken place uh, in Europe and you were referring to business models where you think you know, it's not, there's not enough of them uh, there yet. But the ones we have, uh, the, like the ones uh, Octopus, there's also some, some very nice ones <coughs> in, in, uh, in uh, Brussels, Brussels, you know, who uh, is doing this third party installations. All of these innovations are happening because we have markets. So if we would move back into guaranteed uh, pricing for renewables, uh, this is nice because you know it is something that helped us and it will still help us in the future. But having governments deciding how many renewables we will build, um, knowing that, for example, in the current national energy and climate plans, the targets for renewables uh, and for solar, I can speak for solar, are completely underwhelmed. Uh, and having this dependent then uh, on CFDs, I think, is a, just a very bad idea. Would it not help with the long-term sort of pricing, uh, predictability of energy, um, and therefore bring investors on board a lot quicker? I think what helps for a long-term predictability is just setting very clear goals. Uh, and that, <clears throat> that is why we have, sorry, that is why we have been uh, calling very much uh, to set clear goals and to set ambitious goals. So we've been calling for a 45% renewables uh, target. And, uh, and yesterday it was very uh, great to see that Ember is coming up with uh, some figures of how much we would save um, uh, if we would go higher. Uh, so targets, and uh, that's what Ditte also said, um, was important. Setting targets is providing visibility to investors in which direction we want to go. Uh, so this is much more, uh, yeah, this is, uh, is, is much better than, uh, you know, interfering into the markets. Well, perhaps just sort of um, amend a bit there because uh, targets give us the direction, but it doesn't get us there alone. Uh, we need to do the walking and, and it, is, uh, it is a long-term effort and it, it is capital intensive investments we need to do. We need, as I said, we need the renewables, but we need the system to function and, and that requires uh, a diversity of assets. It requires storage and it, it divides. It, it requires also some some uh, some firm capacity, and um, we're not seeing those investments flow. And and we need for some of those assets, and and we need a push that's that that um, basically sets those investment uh, trends on the right track because they're not there today. But that does not mean that we should basically abolish the market. Uh, and and it's really good news that 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 so much is happening, uh, even in a time where where you know you have massive interventions in the market. That, that you still see a lot of capacity coming online. So, so we, need, we need this um, respectful reform that, that basically acknowledges what we've built, uh, what, what the commission has built, what, what uh, we've built together, and then build on top of that to, to make sure that this is also fit for net zero. I, I still think, I'm not sure this, there is awareness with the policy makers just how much renewables have to be built in like a few years from now. And when Ditte was saying, yeah, it will be private investment, I think it's super important what you say. I think it's not yet understood fully like 
how much more investment will go in there. And we have our past of everything will be market-based, but now there is also an inflation and, and a, no, a cost inflation crisis. And also, I mean, if you go to one terawatt, it will not be only the super good shallow spots in offshore in the North Sea. Yeah? It will be more risky projects. So I, I'm not sure. And then actually, I have to say, for once yesterday, the IEA comes out with their new renewables forecast and says, wow, finally, we've never predicted such an amazing increase because they've been in the past always like, remember the curves, no? what they predicted for renewables growth was like this. And then the market was like, this. And now they come with, now the Europe will build two times more. And I'm like, no, I mean, now you're being too optimistic after 10 years of pessimism, no? Because I, I don't think it's just falling from the sky. Michaela, it's a huge increase in investments in renewables generation assets and a huge increase in the renewable supply chains. Both are needed. Take offshore wind. The European supply chain for it today, as it stands, is incapable of meeting the Repower EU targets. We need to triple the volume of manufacturing capacity. And the companies involved are operating at a loss today because of poor auction design, poor permitting. So this needs public financial support along the lines of the IRA. It's good the EU is beginning to wake up to this. We're encouraged by this new thing, Clean Tech Europe, that Thierry Breton set up last week with the member states, economy ministries, with the clean energy manufacturing industries. One of my long-standing frustrations working in the energy sector has been that the discussion about energy is most about electricity yeah. and I just see ourselves falling into the same trap. <laughs> uh, but of course we've just heard Ditter talking about you know, the gas crisis that we're in, the need to electrify. She talked about hydrogen. So I want to use a little bit of our time to talk about the non-electric sectors. And I see some people in the audience who do work in those sectors and are trying very hard to drive down fossil fuels in heating and transport and in industry. Uh, so the the, the key vector that Ditter called out was electrification. And I know that um, you're all aware of that. But I'm, what I'm interested in is, where do you see the key barriers? You know, why are we not moving faster in those sectors with using renewable electricity to replace gas, oil, coal that is currently being burned for heating, in industrial processes or for transport? What needs to happen so we can use more of the renewable electricity in those sectors? And any of you can probably answer the question from your perspective. Well, why aren't we electrifying faster? We, we um, First of all, we do have fairly ambitious targets for electrification, even though we want, in principle, to go higher. We have, uh, we have an, an electricity shortage today, uh, which is very significant. Uh, and, um, I mean, we've just heard this morning, uh, six TSOs call out the markets and, and basically raise a, a yellow flag on, on potential uh, rolling uh, outages uh, through the winter. So... Even, you know, you would never hear this from the electricity boss before, but yes, we do need to save electricity. It's, it's crazy, but we, that we have to, that's the situation. So we have uh, an 
an electricity problem, we have a capacity problem, uh, and then we have an integration challenge, which is on the rise. We need to invest massively in grids, like we're not doing right now, in order to make this happen. That again points to the supply chains uh, that um, that we're, we're short of, of the fundamental materials uh, to build things at this speed and scale, um, and 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 that's in essence uh, the challenge. Then we have the raw material uh, access challenge. Um, because the car industry has seen this and we have now an end date for, for the sales of new like, uh, new uh, combustion engine cars but we, we need to make this happen and we need to roll out the infrastructure and reinforce the grids uh, to get there. So I think it's in, in essence uh, the story about a transformation of a, of a scale and a speed uh, that that we, we really fail to compute and, um, and that's why we all want it to happen faster, but um, we need so many things to happen at the same time. Maybe first responding still to your uh, comment that we do not see all of the volumes that the IEA is predicting falling from the sky. Um, the, so for next year, the IEA is predicting some 30 gigawatt of solar. We're at more than 40 this year already and uh, it will be much higher in the years to come. So I, I do not think that uh, they're overestimating all of a sudden uh, renewables. On the contrary, uh, at least for solar, they're still on the lower side. Uh, so, so that's just one comment on, on this one. Then uh, supply chains, yes, uh, very important. Uh, we will be launching the PV Industry Alliance tomorrow with Commissioner Breton, a couple of uh, ministers and, uh, and, and CEOs. So this should also be working hand in hand with a clean tech platform that Commissioner Breton has just uh, launched a couple of days ago where solar will also play a, a major role. So we we have to make sure that Europe is uh, resilient when it comes to supply chains. That's why we need to build up uh, 30 gigawatt in the first uh, in the first instance in Europe, uh, as the Commission sets its goal for 2025, uh, and then further on. But what we see today with the Inflation Reduction Act, indeed, is that it acts a little bit as a vacuum uh, cleaner. You know, uh, all these projects which we have seen, you know, taking shape uh, in Europe, are all of a sudden looking into into the U.S. So one of the ideas which has been, uh, which has been uh, issued by Ursula von der Leyen of having a sovereignty fund uh, could definitely help in, in building up uh, supply chains and, uh, and closing the gaps. Uh, and this is something, because you know, we're talking about missing money, uh, so this is something that uh, could be financed a little bit like next generation EU uh, uh, with uh, capital markets coming in. But we do need to have that resilience uh, and you know, for, the, for the backbone which we will have on electricity markets, also make sure that the supply chains uh, are, are based in, in, uh, in the EU, at least to a certain extent. Just quickly going back to your solar power figure, you said 40 gigawatt this year, hopefully more next year. Do you know how much? It's more than 40, so I don't more reveal the latest figures yet. Uh, yeah. We're going to do that at the launch 40. of our European market outlook. We'll look out for that and we'll, <laughs> we'll share a link on that as well. How much of that is rooftop solar, and so therefore coming from private individuals, uh, and therefore creating its own difficulties for grid and negative load? Um, and then also going back to the IRA, you've mentioned it, and I know Giles has mentioned it as well. How has that act um, made your supply chain efforts uh, even more important? So 
On your first question, uh, what we've seen in the past years and also going forward quite stable is that uh, it's 50-50. Yeah? 50% uh, is small-scale installations on rooftops, but also car parks and, and more and more so hopefully on, on parkings and other infrastructures. Uh, and 50% is big power plants. So that is quite constant and, uh, and probably that will also be the same in the next couple of years. Um, now, so supply chain, sorry, could you repeat your question? How important, uh, now the IRAs come out, has that accelerated your and made it much more important? Uh, yes, I do think so, because, you know, uh, it, is, it has made it very evident that Europe has an issue, uh, and it's not just the energy supply chains. You know, if you look at all the different industries in Europe which are crying out loud at the moment because they see their own industries looking into investments um, in, in the US, so it has made it uh, it has made it more apparent, but at the same time, uh, you know, the strategic interest of having these industries should have been there already earlier, but it just makes it more apparent that we, Europe needs to do something uh, and needs to come up with, uh, with solutions in order to keep the industries uh, in Europe. Just to give you one, one figure on that, uh, because we see investments, and it's not that uh, we are not seeing investments uh, in our supply chains in Europe. So, for example, NL Green Power, uh, together so with the help of the Innovation Fund, 100 million euros roundabout, is investing in, uh, in cells and modules manufacturing in Catania and Italy. But they have now taken uh, the decision um, at very short term to also invest in the US, 3 gigawatt, and uh, scale it up to 6 gigawatt uh, very quickly. And they've made a calculation of how much more money they would get for the same investment in the US, and it's 14 times more, 14, 1, 4, uh, more than what they get in Europe with the innovation fund money. So, you know, the decision is very quickly made and this is what we have to counterbalance here uh, in Europe. So that, that uh, shows the scale that we have to counterbalance here in Europe. Charles, what was your reaction to the IRA? The IRA is good public policy and Europe should emulate it, yeah. emulate it, not challenge it. Can I respond to the earlier question on electrification? One other reason why it's not growing more rapidly is the tax system. Consumers pay more tax per unit of final energy consumption on electricity than they do on gas. This is unfair. The energy tax directive amendments that are going through as part of the Fit for 55 package may do something to help, but we need action at national level to give us a level playing field in how electricity is taxed compared to gas. Charles, I was hoping that you would be making that point, and you did. <laughs> and you even mentioned the title of a rap report, Leveling the Playing Field, oh. uh, which is about clean heating. On, and Thank you so much, Charles, for making that point. <laughs> um, I know we're running out of time very slowly, so I'd like to open the floor to questions from the audience. I hope we have lots coming uh, up shortly. Um, just one final uh, question from me. Where do we go next? What is the plan for your industries? How do we respond both to the current crisis in the short term while also reaffirming long-term decarbonization goals? I would say, first of all, we need to, to land all the Fit for 55 legislation. And, and I would caution that, that, um, that there's a little bit of a push needed here. Um, there is, uh, in my view, uh, a risk of a fragmentation in the European Parliament that could uphold uh, some of these files. So we need to push this through now and because that's, that's essentially the basis for, uh, for a rapid upscaling of, of electrification and, and uh, an accelerated decarbonization. 
Then I would say, um, I think the market design is on the table. We need to land this in a pragmatic way that ensures uh, that we continue to attract 100 billion euros worth of investments every year from now on until uh, some, somewhere in the 2040s. Uh, then we need to look at uh, the, the grid piece because this is overlooked. Uh, we have a structural underinvestment in grids and it goes both for the uh, high voltage uh, infrastructures that are needed for the offshore adventure and it goes very much also for the local grids that are needed to absorb those enormous amounts of, of solar uh, which are coming online. Um, and, and this is one of the next big bottlenecks uh, that, that we will have to address politically. We need to find out how we, we sort of square that circle um, DSOs are, are basically um, really facing a massive push for, for connections and, and they're, not, they're not basically able to keep up with it for the moment. So how do we solve this? And it's, it's not about evil DSOs, it's really not. And it's important to understand because if, if you start with the wrong analysis, um, you get the wrong answers. We need to solve this systemically. Uh, it's about local flexibility, uh, local flexibility markets, which is also forgotten in, in, the, in the market design debate. And it's about grid reinforcements and potentially it's about uh, the uh, the increased installation of, of, of local storage. Um, this is a personal view of mine, but but it's a discussion we need to have and, and we need to get smarter about it. Um, and then I would say it's time to also assess. Uh, we get the Fit for 55, we, we get th uh, you know through the market design debate then we, I think we need to stop and take a look at, at everything that's going on because frankly, there's been an explosion of, of legislation and there's, uh, I dare say, a few inconsistencies already. We need to look at those, honestly. Um, companies are overwhelmed. Uh, associations are overwhelmed. Everybody is running around like crazy to, to sort of keep up with, with the pace of everything that's going on. Um, we, we've had discussions about a potential ban on lead. Uh, well, that might be great from a very, very singular perspective of, of, uh, of toxic substances. It's going to kill everything around cables. So, I mean, let's make sure that we're not, you know, uh, making great plans and shooting ourselves in both feet at the same time. Let's assess this across the board and make sure that, that, that we're still able to actually, uh, let's say, deliver. Well, we might have to assess even before it's wrapped up to avoid some of the inconsistencies. But uh, as you say, it's almost impossible to keep track of everything. For yeah, yeah, I would say. I mean, there, there's a there's a there's a review process that that we can still use. We can still use the trilogues, but but there's really also you know the the, the task in, in in the next year to to define a, a, you know a, a pragmatic um, let's say um, agenda for a new commission to sort of say okay uh, where are the gaps in in this enormous uh, uh, you know. Um, building we've we've uh, constructed um I'm going to open, the f open it to the floor. Uh, I'd love to hear your questions. <laughs> well, uh, well no, I'm sorry. Please. So, so maybe just to mention that we do have to see that we have a revolution, a renewables revolution now. And uh, instead of apologizing to, you know, being able to get into the grid and being able to, you know, get the flexibility, we do think that the system has to change and has to accommodate <laughs> renewables. Yeah. So, so we do think that you know, first, what we need is grids. Indeed, I mean, we've talked about it uh, already largely, but then also a plan on storage, uh, on flexibility, and a real plan when it comes to where we want to go uh, in order to, in parallel, build up the flexibility we need. So the Commission should look into uh, storage 
plan uh, and come up with a strategy as they did for renewables uh, so that we have a clear plan towards 2030. So Christian, she just proposed a new initiative. <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> we need to simplify the permitting, build out the grid, strengthen the supply chains and avoid messing things up on electricity markets or through poor renewable auction design or through stupid legislation, e.g. on lead. Now let's open it up to the floor uh, and uh, any questions from the audience. There's a gentleman at the uh, back. Um, hello, my name is uh, Sanjeev Kumar. I'm the Head of Policy at the European Geothermal Energy Council. Fascinating conversation, but I want to pick up Jan's point and bring in the, the point that Christian made about um, how, what conversation do we need to have? Now, let's put this in context. We've got 20 years by which the power sector has to decarbonize. We also have to decarbonize the heating sector and transport if we're serious about climate, although we have another crisis. So can we go into this conversation without having a discussion about what the energy market fully decarbonized needs to look like in 2050, i.e. what does the 100% renewable scenario and how much nuclear is there within that really needs to be set so we have an idea for the different uh, players, the visibility. Secondly, a lot of the conversation we're having at the moment um, uh, around renewables is, uh, and it's very important conversation we're having around wind and PV, you know, we, we support it as a community, but I think it's important to start looking at the other, you know, next generation renewables, people like, you know, base low renewable energy providers like geothermal, oceans, um, uh, solar thermal <coughs> and uh, concentrated solar power. So that we have a fuller understanding of how they interact with one another, because that has fundamental decisions around the type of policies and regulations that we're looking at. And then the final point is, is in the heat market, we have heat purchase agreements. Now, heat purchase agreements generally tend to be in the context of, of, of geothermal, a, a 25-year, 30-year contract. What do you, how do you, we emulate those using the heat decarbonisation through electrification as a means to allow new baseload renewable suppliers to help electrify um, our heating sector? Thank you. So maybe on, uh, on the role of other renewables... Then uh, wind and solar. So definitely, I mean, we need all all renewables. And uh, I think the discussions in the renewable uh, around the renewable energy directive also shows that uh, you know we need uh, we need a goal for innovative uh, renewables. I think the, this is something which is going to be taken up. So we need to make sure that we also encouraging other renewables to play uh, a significant role. Um, now, uh, on, on heating, just to go back to that uh, once again, I do think one of the things we need to look into very quickly is banning oil and gas boilers. Uh, I think this is, uh, is one of the measures which would propel heating into a completely different, uh, onto a completely different level. Uh, and uh, we should not shy away from that, apart from the, from the taxes, uh, where we still don't have a level playing field. But very clear measures like banning oil and gas uh, boilers would, would help us and would also give the citizens what they want. Uh, uh, when, when you talk to Berg, uh, to the representative of, uh, of the, the consumers, that's what they want. They want electric heating because uh, it will make sure that energy poverty is not locked in. Uh, and that's why we have to just take the measures uh, which are necessary. Yeah. Uh, Christian, uh, there was a question about firm power and uh, renewable baseload. You mentioned firm power a couple of times there. What is your definition of firm power by 2050? Is it nuclear? Is it geothermal? And what is that sort of share of the uh, energy mix at that point? 
Well, I think um, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we, we you know, uh, make it so comfortable to talk about you know, something in 30 years' time. We can imagine all kinds of things. The thing we have right here, right now, is uh, uh, you know, a screaming energy crisis. We are short of electric capacity that is basically ready for the market. We're short of, um, we're short of gas. So, I mean, we need to solve a situation right here, right now. And, and, and it also shows us that, that, that we're going to have a mix of sources in the next 20 years. Uh, let's try to build out as fast as possible. But right now, uh, the, the, the solutions are a bit more complex. And we need a, a diversity of assets. We need firm capacity. In, uh, in the system for a long time to come. Uh, and, and the second point I want to make on, on the heating, electric heat pumps, great. Um, giant heat pumps, really, really great. And, um, and, and here I'm talking about giant heat pumps that can function together with broader heating systems. Um, because we need to be honest about the fact that, that uh, individual heat pumps are not going to be uh, enough on its own. They're needed, and, and they can really help individual households here and, here and now. But we need to use all the systems we have, including uh, district heating systems. Um, and we need to see how can we decarbonize those. And, and big heat pumps uh, are, are a big part of that equation. So for the market design questions that were said, you know, should we assess market design for 2050? Well, I think we should assess what market design is needed from now until 2050, because it is an investment. Uh, it is a market that that basically uh, is invested in uh, like never before. That's what we need to have uh, today, tomorrow, and the next 20 years. What are we going to do in 2050? Well, let's see about that. Probably it's, it's not us, but the, a new generation of, uh, of uh, industry stakeholders and policymakers and journalists that, that, uh, that need to, to solve that one. Heat pumps are great. We also need big electric boilers to run district heating systems. And on other renewables, let's not forget the low-hanging fruit still to be exploited on combined wind and solar. There is not nearly enough of it in Europe. Only seven significant scale projects, which is crazy given the complementarity of the two technologies and the very firm capacity you get when you combine them. One problem here is that most countries don't have a definition in their legal frameworks of a combined wind-solar project. So the permitting authorities don't know what animal you are when you come along with a combined project. We're trying to solve this now through an amendment to the Renewable Energy Directive. And it's in the European Parliament. Many MEPs are backing it. And it would require all countries to have a clear definition of combined wind-solar and wind-solar and storage projects. Wouldn't that be the first time that wind and solar is also mentioned? Because I think if you look at the red text, it only talks up it, it doesn't specify this, which is also a bit of a gap because it's a lot about fuels and bioenergy traditionally from where it came from. And then you always see these nice charts from the IEA that basically assume it's wind and solar, but I don't think we are there yet. In, no? I mean, from where we come from, from how the Renewables Directive emerged and what it was designed for. Chance for any final questions from the audience? Yes, uh, in the second row here. My name is uh, Rainer Lütgehus. Uh, I ask myself, would you attend from the new market uh, electricity design? Did I understand you, correct you uh, correctly that you don't want to change the merit order principle and in, in the current design and that you only want small changes? 
Christian said, uh, you mentioned the retail sector. Could you this explain uh, more in detail? So yeah, I would say we would definitely keep the merit order. The, the, the merit order and the marginal pricing system is, is a very efficient way of, of ensuring a, a cost-effective dispatch. Uh, so that system is, is, is very good for, for the short-term markets. Uh, now, do, do that, uh, does that system uh, sufficiently guarantee the investment volumes that, that we need? Uh, we're not convinced of that. So we're saying there needs to be a competition for the market. Uh, there needs to be a push of capacity into the market uh, with auctions. Uh, and there needs to be the, uh, the competition in the market, which, which is what we have today. Um, then for the customers, uh, as I said, we need to remember, first of all, that this is a gas crisis. Uh, this started in the gas uh, segment uh, because we had a very deliberate disruption of the gas supplies. So what we should have done was to address that in the first instance and then see what needs tweaking in the downstream uh, in the electricity market. So what are we saying on retail? We're saying that uh, part of the pain that customers are feeling today is uh, because some customers in Europe are um, overexposed, if you will, to spot prices. So if you all of a sudden have uh, you know, uh, prices going through the roof like they did in August uh, to 1,000 euros per megawatt hour, we can't hit the customers like that. Um, and, and how do we avoid that? Well, by ensuring that there's a good mix of long-term signals, so hedged energy, and spot in the retail price. Uh, and, and how do we get that? Well, first of all, we, we, we remove the obstacles uh, for, for, for those types of arrangements, those types of long-term arrangements. Today, as I said, there are bans on uh, long-term arrangements in many member states. So that's a problem that we need to fix. Um, secondly, we can look at, uh, at, at contracting arrangements and standardize that much more. Um, there is a lack of products in, 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 you know, in, in time frames uh, four to 10 years. So, so we can get that going uh, with, with um, standardization of contracts, pooling mechanisms, and, and contracts backed by, uh, by the state. Um, and in essence, what we're saying is that there's a lot of no regrets that nobody would have posed to. You could also incentivize hedging more than you do today. Um, those things, most stakeholders, I think, would, would, would subscribe to. And we would not be talking about things that would disrupt the market, that would scare away investments uh, as, as more radical interventions would. Thank you very much. Uh, one final very quick question uh, in the middle there. My name is Pietro Abbasem from Nordpool. We operate uh, power markets in Europe. I promised Bruce I would ask simple questions, so let me try and do that. Um, um, we said in the past that we wanted to privilege uh, energy-only markets, but in the light of the current uh, longer-term uh, reform, we see capacity mechanisms uh, coming back. Now, uh, that has been also included in the latest, some of the latest proposals, also by the foreign school regulation. So, I wanted to hear from uh, the three of you what you think about capacity mechanisms and also uh, how they should be designed, if any, and particularly from a solar and wind uh, energy um, point of view. That was the simple question. I'm hoping it's not that simple answers. So, very simple. If, you, uh, if, uh, if we're talking about capacity markets, I think it's very important that 
flexibility uh, also is able to play a very important role in, in that. Uh, and every capacity market uh, needs to look into make, uh, providing a level playing field because flexibility is exactly what we need and all instruments that can help flexibility into the markets, whether it's capacity markets or others, uh, would be highly appreciated. Yes, capacity and availability markets probably have an important role to play uh, for renewables and renewables need to be allowed to compete equally and fairly in the balancing and other ancillary service markets. They cannot yet everywhere, and that's an important additional source of revenue for renewables. We see uh, capacity markets as, uh, as one of those uh, long-term uh, instruments that, that should be, uh, let's say, on the table uh, for reform. Uh, today, we, we have capacity markets in a, in a number of, of member states, uh, but they're sort of so to speak, outside the market. It's, it's, it was, as it's, it was said in, in the CEP, it, it was a last resort. What we need to, to think about is, you know, uh, if, we, if we acknowledge that the energy transition is a long-term endeavor, we need to, to look at those long-term tools that can help us get uh, investments in, for instance, storage, uh, which, uh, which is struggling today. Uh, when you talk to people that operate storage, if it's not amortized, they're basically you know, running after revenues in, in 10 different markets. And you know, they, they'll build one, but, but will they build you know, tens of gigawatts of this? It's, it's too complex, and, and, and uh, the visibility and, and, and the long-term signals is lacking. Um, so, um, so yes, capacity markets are, are part and parcel of what we're looking for. That is sadly all we have time for uh, for in this special edition of What Matters. My thanks go to Ditte Yul Jorgensen, uh, Christian Ruby, Valberger, Hemmetsberger, and Giles Dixon. Of course, to Jan Rosnow and Michaela Hall, uh, and our excellent audience here at, in Brussels. Uh, we're grateful again to Your Electric for hosting today's recording, and also to Siemens Smart Infrastructure and Linda for supporting today's event and our ind independent journalism. If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time.